Hi, I'm Alex Winter, and you're listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ben, this is a uh, first for us. What are we doing? Who are you? I don't even know what I'm looking at. You're looking at me. We're actually revealing what uh, we typically do where no one else can see us, which is, uh, you know, this has been an audio podcast for nine years now. To be oh, ten, my God. I, I know. Ten years in February. So we are actually letting people see a little behind the curtain. And I think it's very, very timely because uh, who's on the show today? Alex Winter, the one and only Alex Winter. Returning again to talk about his new movie called The YouTube Effect. And we are also going to post this video on YouTube. So our editor, Ben Katz, is going to have extra work. He's going to be cutting the audio version and then also the video version, which should be pretty much identical. But um, so, Ben, a couple months ago, back in June, I went to the VidCon convention in Anaheim for 2023. And I gave uh, a little bit of a report, but I did promise Mm -hmm. that I would do something a little bit more in depth this time. And oh, man, was there a ton of stuff to talk about. And this is not going to be a comprehensive uh, report of VidCon. So this is a few months ago. So this is all completely obsolete now anyway, right? Because, you know, in, in a month, the whole thing changes. You know, there is some truth to that in the very, very fleeting nature in which social media and web-based content continues to morph and change. It's true. There is new stuff that is that has come to be. But I will tell you that the inflection point that we are at right now continues. And uh, it's a very, very interesting oh, time. It continues to inflect. It's inflecting like all hell. <laughs> it is. It doesn't stop inflecting. So I want to play a couple of clips just to kind of give our audience the flavor. I want to start off with a little soundbite here from Joshua Cohen, who is the one of the co-founders of TubeFilter, which is a very famous website. And he talks a little bit about, I'm sure you remember, you're of a certain age. You can remember like Larry H. Parker or Jacobian Myers, some of these, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, ambulance chasing big advertising law firms that were extremely popular in Los Angeles. Well, there's a trend that's going on right now nationwide. And I'm going to let Josh Joshua Cohen uh, just sort of explain it. So here goes. All right. So to be specific, this is a video from YouTuber Element X, who's a Minecraft gamer with around 475,000 subscribers. He nets around 400,000 views per video. This one did particularly well for him. He has 1.2 million views and counting on that one. It's from February. And it was sponsored by Morgan & Morgan, which is one of the biggest law firms in the country. They have over 3,000 employees, 800 lawyers, operating in 49 states, and since 1988 claimed to have generated over $15 billion in claims for its clients. About six or seven months ago, started sponsoring a lot of content on YouTube. I'm here to talk about the best legal representation you can get from today's sponsor, Morgan and Morgan. If you're ever injured in an accident, you can check out Morgan and Morgan. I wish I had known about Morgan and Morgan. I want to thank today's sponsor, Morgan and Morgan. Today's sponsor is Morgan and Morgan. Today's video is sponsored by Morgan and Morgan. I've been challenged to put a plunger on all 26 mile markers of the LA Marathon by Morgan and Morgan. We actually found 226 Morgan and Morgan sponsored videos with over 50,000 views uploaded this year. That's 1.32 sponsored videos per day. 
Yeah, you know, that first clip, that's a Minecraft YouTuber who's making Minecraft videos who interrupts his Minecraft video play to do a commercial by Morgan and Morgan Attorneys at Law. It's, it seems a little odd because, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but the target audience of those Minecraft videos is probably, let's say, kids under 15. It would seem like it, but clearly Morgan and Morgan knows something about the viewers of some of these channels that maybe. Well, I got to say, I end up watching a lot of these freaking Minecraft videos with my son, who is five. And, uh, you know, not that I have any ambulances that currently need chasing, but. I thought this was a good clip and very sort of representative of the type of high level research and information that is coming out through this creator economy that isn't really being uh, proliferated through, you know, traditional the traditional media, yeah. traditional news sources. So the industry is becoming very self-reflective. There's a lot of data and some of that's getting out there about how the world is sort of changing and where the advertiser dollars are shifting. Like in the past, you know, a Morgan and Morgan might have really been considering like Super Bowl ads. Now it's, you know. I always, I always equate, uh, maybe not Morgan and Morgan, but in general, kind of the ambulance chasing videos as like uh, late night, you know, you fell asleep watching TV at, and, and you woke up at three in the morning and there was an infomercial about them. Like, I feel like they always were the bottom feeders of airtime. It seems like that, but it's very interesting to find 200 plus videos which Morgan and Morgan have sponsored with 50, I wonder 000. what that means do they do they talk about how much money they're putting into them you can only imagine because when YouTube creators have hundreds of thousands of subscribers their ask goes way up it's a lot mm. of money to 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 buy that sort of advertising but that's a it's an interesting form of direct advertising direct to the creator that in the past didn't really exist because exactly like you're talking about sort of like late night television that ad buy would most likely go to a local television station. It would go to, you know, so a regional player at best, and it would get inserted in space that that regional player had blocked out. So now an individual, you know, Minecraft gamer is that advertising agency and is collecting that money and is seemingly negotiating the rates for that on their own. So it's probably a little all over the map, but it's a very, very interesting trend, and I will say that this is only sort of like tip of the iceberg, and we don't have time to get into all of it, but I want to play the next soundbite from a gentleman named Matthew Patrick, who's better known as Matt Pat. Matt Pat is one of these incredibly famous YouTubers, not someone who actually, I'd, I have to admit, had never seen a Matt Pat video before being in the same you know convention center ballroom and having him speak about his channel being acquired by Scandinavian venture capitalists who'd come to this country and said, here's a bunch of money. They didn't reveal exactly how much it was, but it's been reported to be somewhere in the eight to ninety million dollar range. So who knows? It's, oh it's, my it's, God. it's not not an insignificant it buys a lot of IKEA shelves. It certainly does. So that company that invested in MatPat is going to change in some ways what he's doing, but in other ways not completely rewrite the rule book and just today actually is the streamy awards in which matt pat was hosting and i'll talk more about the streamy awards later but let's hear this little clip from from matt pat 
we sold because the business was growing to a size where Steph and I were like, we were accidental entrepreneurs. We got into this this space because I was I needed a job and I needed to prove to people that I could make stuff that was interesting and I needed a resume item. And bit by bit over time, just by we're like, hey, let's make this into what it can truly become. It became a business. It became not one person or one couple's YouTube channel. It became a business with employees and payrolls and taxes and this and that. And it got to a size where we, you know, it, it, it was overwhelming. It was a lot, and it was a lot to balance that against the creative demands and the deliverables that. We we had to do on a week-to-week -week basis. And so I think, if anything, what I miss is like the simplicity of the earliest days, but this sort of acquisition and this sort of partnership helps us get back to that. Because now all of a sudden, Steph and I aren't having to be in the weeds about taxes and payroll and our, HR. Managers. Our only priority and our only loyalty is to the content and yeah, to the audience. Yeah. And that's, you know, who could ask for more than that? Right, and so that I think is, is the ideal, and that's why we've been able to kind of reset it back to that. So it's really interesting because you hear a lot about the YouTube burnout and you hear a lot about the creator economy, about the, you know, these people have now yeah. know, gone so far into this. Uh, Mr. Beast was just complaining actually right before he won creator of the year at the Streamy Awards for the third time that he's suffering major, major burnout and that his yeah. whole purpose on this this earth is to is to make videos. But um, I, I would so prefer them to say videos than to say our number one priority was to our content. Ugh. Yeah, I know. But but, you know, that's kind stop, of an old, old man thing. That's an uh, old man thing. You're, you're being an old man right now because content has become a catch all. Some of it is video. Mm. Much of it is video, but but not all of it. And it, it can be all kinds of things. I mean, I hesitate to call like a six second or a 10 second TikTok that goes viral, you know, a, a video that that is something maybe, you know, reduced or, or I, less than. I agree. I, I have uh, more than once ranted about just my objection to the Semantics. idea that what we yeah. make content, you yeah. know, like right now we're making a podcast. And is it is it content? Sure, but you know we're not making some filler for the podcast tubes. We're communicating something that we think is important to us, or we wouldn't be doing it, right? That's true, and uh, I think it's very interesting because the way that we define all of these things, I think going forward in the future, is going to be really important. Just because if we aren't more specific, there's going to be a lot of confusion, and there's going to be a whole lot of extra words being wasted needlessly. When really, if we just use the correct terminology for things, everyone's going to be able to understand each other so much better. Uh, okay, so in this last clip, we got two people. Jamie uh, Rostroth basically was a YouTube creator who had about a million subscribers and then dropped out and then came back as an entrepreneur selling a service, you know, which is basically a consulting coaching sort of business for people who want to grow their channels. But also something that I, I think is very interesting because I think a lot of people who are doing this don't even understand that the moment they don the professional cap, professional YouTuber, they are a business and they have to, to concentrate on doing things differently. Mm -hmm. And then the, the other voice we're about to hear is from Eric Way, and he is the founder uh, or co-founder of a company called Carrot. And Carrot is uh, positioning itself as a fintech financial organization, specifically trying to help people inside the creator economy. And uh, let, let's go with it. I'll, I'll play it right now. The skills required to be a really good creator are so opposite from being a good manager, approving holidays, approving sick days, ensuring they're punctual, just all of that stuff is the opposite of showing you around a billion dollar yacht like Mr. Beast will do or something like that. So I think uh, maybe just like accepting that and really stepping aside and saying, right, how am I going to acquire these skills? How am I going to how am I going to become a good manager and marry that with the content creation is what I'd say. 
If you're a creator, you're a business. Why did you then decide to shift from being a creator into an entrepreneurial founder raising money? Now, that's a two-part question for each of you. Yeah, I, what I think is really interesting about bo- both these people, and he's just giving you this little bit of a sample because they're they're on panels and being uh, presenting panels where people are talking about the new creator economy, like because there mm-hmm. there have already been like you know five or six different waves of this with Hollywood coming in and sort of traditional media, and now a lot of these people who have achieved a certain level kind of doing it for themselves and actually hiring and bringing in people, a lot of whom worked in traditional entertainment, particularly in reality television, because reality television aligns very, very closely in some ways with the creator economy in that reality television really has sort of like the two big prong effect, the same way as YouTube. There's a lot of stuff Mm -hmm. that's out there for entertainment, and there's a lot of stuff that's out there for utility or education. And that's very, very true in the different sorts of channels that exist out there all across cable. And of course, even in the prime time for reality television, you had, you know, your, your bachelors and bachelorettes and your fear factors and your contest type of shows, as well as sort of your home improvement shows, your DIY networks, your home and garden televisions and discoveries and your shark weeks. So you have yeah. that. That's very much like what's going on on YouTube and people who are creating one of or or the other of this you know genre of content are no longer doing it at a, you know, hobbyist level. It is progressed now to the point where they cannot do it all themselves. They must employ appropriate people to work together as a team, very similar to the way that that production companies and studios are in the business of constantly churning out shows. It's happening now on slightly different levels, but there's a lot of similarities. And once you start to draw those connections and make the connections between what the creator economy and the traditional entertainment industry has done over the last hundred years, you really start to see that this is a burgeoning new area for entertainment. And I would like to say something like it's anyone's guess where it's going to go. I think actually we have a really good idea of where it's going to go. But it seems to be very generational. And if you really want to have like that generational split where the, there's a, a younger generation right now that is aware of all the biggest players, of all the biggest channels, of all the biggest stuff that exists on YouTube and in this creator economy. And I would say that there's another generation of people, I include myself in that, where it's comical to hear the names of these people because they they ring zero bells. If you go click mm. on the Streamy Awards, they will just do a rundown of all the famous people who are on that show. And I recognized two of, of like probably the 50 names. Who, who, who are the two? Uh, <laughs> Rhett and Link from Good Mythical Morning, who are very like, mm. you know, uh, old school people and the host. Matthew Patrick, Matt Pat, who I was just talking about because I was, you know, he was uh, doing a presentation at VidCon. So there was two of that entire long list of people who they went through there. And boy, do you feel old when, you know, here are all these people with tons, millions and millions and millions of subscribers and views and worldwide popularity. And uh, I don't know them. It is an economy unto itself inside of its own it's, space. Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's very youth uh, centric. And I once uh, spoke to my dad about Smosh. Mm-hmm. And my father, and you know, like talking to my dad, who's an old broadcast guy, though, like TV and radio guy, and he never heard of them. And he, I was trying to explain to him what Smosh was, and I was like, imagine, and it's not just Smosh, but it's a lot of these YouTube channels. Imagine Elvis or the Beatles or U2 or whatever at the top of their game when they were as famous as they ever could be, except nobody under the age of 25, maybe, had ever even heard of them. 
that's how nicheified it is. You know, we're like, these people have millions upon millions of viewers. Any TV series would be happy to get the kind of loyalty and viewership that a lot of these YouTube channels have that a Mr. Beast has or Smosh or once upon a time PewDiePie, some of these people. And yet no one's ever figured out a way to make very much money, if any money at all, with them outside of YouTube. It seems like their entire focus, I don't want to say that their entire utility, because they're human beings and they could go do interesting things with their lives, but where their success is lying is is in this one venue. And again, to kind of talk a little bit about what Alex Winter is about to mention and about his movie, The YouTube Effect, is that YouTube's kind of created a monopoly. There, there isn't anyone else that does this. Like there are services like Vimeo that do something similar to YouTube, but no one's making a living as a creator on Vimeo using Vimeo's proprietary algorithms and advertising Vimeo places. Vimeo is completely different in every in in, in all of those ways. Yeah, it's because YouTube has a a social media component to it that is in some ways it's secret sauce. There are so many people who are engaging on it. It is also a search engine. And the fact that it is inside of the whole Google family, the number one search engine being Google, the number two being YouTube, yeah. means that uh, that they have... I, I use YouTube every day, every single day. Yeah, I've, I've heard many people now tell me that they search for answers on YouTube. Like they they, oh, they would much rather the, have their 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 answer come in a video format than almost anything else. I, I feel like all it's, the time. Well, yeah. if I'm like stuck with an editing problem or something like that, if I'm in Premiere and I'm like, how the hell do I do blah, blah, blah. I don't go to Google. I go to YouTube because hmm. well, inevitably somebody's made a tutorial about how to do it. Yeah, I, I think that's actually a really good place, though, for us to get over to the interview about the new Alex Winter movie, The YouTube Effect. Let's do it. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. Joining us now is a returning champion, Alex Winter. Alex has been on the show before to talk about uh, Zappa and Showbiz Kids, and we are uh, honored to have him back again to talk about his new documentary, The YouTube Effect. Uh, ben and I are sitting down on video for something a little bit unusual. We don't do We've a lot of We've never done one of these for YouTube. Yeah, we, we always do them for audio. But we felt like because it's The YouTube Effect, we ought to put this on YouTube. So we're going to put this on YouTube. So if you uh, ordinarily listen to our podcast as an audio format, you can now actually watch us and see what our recording situation looks like uh, week oh. after week. So, uh, hey, my without, office is such a mess. I apologize to everyone. <laughs> with, without further ado, uh, Alex, uh, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Great to great to see you again. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's good to be back. And, uh, you know, we'll see how long this uh, lasts on YouTube before they take it down. <laughs> All right. So powers uh, that be. So look, for people who don't know, uh, th this movie is now available everywhere. It is now streaming. So anywhere you have streaming services, you can check this out. Uh, Alex, uh, give our listeners the, the log line. What, tell us about this movie, what it's about. Well, it's, it's basically an examination, a thorough, hopefully a thorough examination, um, character driven. You know, it's a documentary, so it's putting faces and emotion uh, and visuals to a story that I think is pretty important that I haven't seen getting told. And that is the, the rise of YouTube as the largest media platform on the planet. It is really the largest media company on the planet, and it's owned by Google and really run by Google, uh, which is the largest tech company on the planet and one of the largest companies, period, you know, far beyond the GDP of most countries. So 
Uh, here you have Google being the number one most viewed website in the world, YouTube being the number two most uh, viewed website in the world, both owned by the same company, not discussed that often in that context. Uh, it's been discussed in various ways. It's a big business story, which we cover. But what is the impact? What is the societal impact of a media platform that pervasive? That was really uh, the kind of burning question that drove us to make the film. I, I had a question when I was watching, because you interview the two guys from Smosh a lot, Ian and Anthony, and uh, you directed the Smosh movie. Um, I did, for YouTube. You, yeah. Uh, was it for YouTube? So were Well, we you... shot it, almost the whole movie at YouTube in Playa, yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Now, were you drawn in to make, so that was that movie was probably, what, about 10 years ago-ish? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Were you drawn in to make that because you were aware of the YouTube sensation that was kind of brewing at that time? Or did that kind of spark your understanding in any way of what was already a humongous industry at that time? Well, the, the reality of it is, is I'm old. So um, <laughs> my, my interest was sparked in 2006. And I began mentoring some people that were working with me in production interns and PAs and stuff, who I sort of pushed towards YouTube in 2006. Some of whom became, not because of me, because of their own ingenuity and creativity, became titans within the YouTube creative space. So I was very aware of the growth of YouTube from the very, very beginning. And by the time I made, <clears throat> excuse me, by the time I made the Smosh movie, uh, my interest in making that and in working with Anthony and, and Ian was that I'd been tracking those guys since probably 07, 08. And they were one of the first creative teams to monetize on YouTube from the very beginning and build a brand that eventually sold and became an actual, like a mini conglomerate, you know, doing games, doing all different kinds of offshoots from their original content. That was really fascinating to me. So, and the idea of, of working with them and making something within kind of that ecosystem, it was done with Awesomeness TV and with YouTube and was also very, it was interesting to me. It was a way for me to kind of explore this new world as the same time we were lampooning kind of the world of the influencer and, you know, with Michael Ian Black and other, you know, really talented people and Anthony and themselves. So, you know, I've been tracking online communities for a very long time, really going back to the eighties and uh, started making documentaries because of, of my interest in online communities, even though now I've made them about different issues. Hmm. And you talked to both of those guys extensively during the film, but I feel like they're kind of an interesting spine to look at this through because they're still doing it. They're, you know, and they've been doing it. YouTube launches in 2005 and they're kind of the old guard now somehow. Yeah. They yep. still both, both seem very young to me, but they're, you know, they've been. They are very young. Yeah. Yeah. And they just got back together. They, they had worked together for a million years and then Anthony left Smosh, which within the YouTube world was quite a famous story unto itself, which we cover in the film. We cover why he left and we cover sort of his own personal crisis of, crisis of conscience around the type of content he felt he needed to be making, uh, the type of engagement he felt he needed to be doing with, with the fan base, which was giant at that time. And they've remained friends. It wasn't a friendship breakup, but there was a sort of an issue that, that Anthony had within himself. And we sort of track that. If you're a, a very successful YouTube influencer, there's this feeling of momentum that you, you can't stop. And if you stop, you're going to get replaced instantly and you'll never regain the traction that you had. And that's a really specific phenomenon. I mean, you certainly have 
somewhat similar phenomena within the, the entertainment industry where, you know, what is my next job? I'm only as good as my last job. But the truth is it's not really so much like that. You can disappear from the industry, do things and come back, you know, maybe not for, you know, decades, but certainly for, for a year or two at a time. And I think there's a feeling within the YouTube ecosystem that there's only one YouTube, it's a monopoly, and you capture enormous amounts of eyeballs, just vast, almost unimaginable, much more than most people in the entertainment industry do. So I think it was interesting for me to track and important for me to track, as you said, two of the very first creators on the platform to succeed who are still at it all these years later and kind of what the implications of that have been for them personally. Let me jump in here. Uh, like yourself, I've been sort of tracking the rise of social media versus traditional media for a long time. I've, I've attended VidCon several times and I felt though that this year, and I kind of feel like right now, is this really interesting inflection point? And I'd really be curious to get your opinion on this because there has been a lot of talk about the, you know, the rise of the creator economy. There has been the whole traditional media investment into the creator economy with the mm. MCNs and all of the sort of like build up and then collapse. And now, especially with like BuzzFeed and Vice and other collapses, there are pundits out there saying, oh, creator economy's dead. Traditional media is where it's at, the, the, you know, the traditional entertainment industry. I feel like YouTube is sort of occupying its own space, either education or entertainment, and that's really its two big cruxes. What do you say? What do you think about the, you know, are, are, is the demise of creator economy completely overstated? Are there people who are just talking out of their rear? What's going on at this moment in time with, you know, the, the way that the traditional media and new creator economy kind of are, are smashing against each other? It's a really good question, and it's kind of the crux of it all, right? And the answer to that question is... If traditional media is doing so great, why are we in the biggest labor crisis of this century right For now? For real. And even the, and even the last real. century. Yeah. Yes. And, so, so true. You know, everyone who writes for an outlet as a journalist is on the ropes if they even have a job anymore. And many people in our industry have left the industry because they can't sustain themselves doing this work anymore. Um, it's been kind of turned into like, you know, the gig economy if you work in the industry. And I think that's why there's been for the first time so much sympathy towards the creatives in the strike is because I think for the first time, because of the internet and because of, of the labor crisis that's affecting people outside our industry, people realize that we're not the elite, right? <laughs> that, we, mm -hmm. that almost everybody, including some people they think of as major stars, are living paycheck to paycheck and barely sustaining themselves within this industry. And if you look at what happened over the last 20 years in our industry and the kind of what many people consider a somewhat misguided or very one-sided shift into streaming and away from traditional forms of exhibition and distribution uh, that don't monetize particularly well and haven't been thought through in that way. So, you know, there are people making vast sums of money off of selling companies or uh, shifting huge amounts of content around uh, but that money is not making its way to the creative workforce anymore. And so that's not sustainable. And that will eventually crash those companies, uh, which I think they're aware, which is why <laughs> we're in 101 <laughs> days of a strike. Oh um, my so, so, I mean, these issues are not unrelated. They're completely related. And I will say that, you know, how can you argue that the influencer content creator economy is dying when YouTube has, is coming out of the biggest profits of its history? TikTok is on fire. Sure, companies come and go and people's appetites shift. 
Uh, I think what is happening right now, in my very humble and maybe completely wrong opinion, just to caveat this, is that there's been so much change in the human brain tends to be binary, right? It tends to go, well, it's either or. I think that's part of what got us into this mess in the first place. I think that that the sort of legacy industries watched the rise of the internet and thought, holy cow, these, these kids on YouTube have like 500 billion views on their, on like whatever music video or whatever piece of content, like, and they don't understand, they didn't understand that that doesn't translate into our industry. It doesn't even translate into money most of the time. So there was this kind of like awe and bedazzlement of this new technology. And in my opinion, the world is getting more bifurcated, which isn't a bad thing. Like there's room for all of these things. There is an ability to have an entertainment industry and a journalism traditional economy that functions at the same time as you have this sort of, as you called it, this ecosystem that YouTube has, which is very specific and to some degree TikTok and, and other well, TikTok doesn't monetize quite the same way. So uh, I think it's, it's not either or. I think that the mistake that we made in the entertainment industry was trying to mimic an industry that has very little to do with us in meaningful ways. It has more to do with us superficially. And the way they monet YouTube monetizes is very, very different than the way Netflix, Amazon, Apple, and other streaming services monetize. And you know these are not subscription, it's an ad-based model, it's not subscription, They're, the content is a very different type of content. YouTube isn't producing their own content for the most part. You know, they're more like a giant MTV where they just, you know, they acquire content, they upload it and they attach ad dollars to it. So I think that that sort of misunderstanding of the rise of technology has created the crisis that we're in, as well as greed, you know, greed of on the part of a handful <laughs> of oligarchs who want to scoop up whatever they can um, while the getting is good. Uh, but I think that where we'll end up is a place where there are where sort of all of these things can should be able to survive, whether they're allowed to survive, I think, is what we don't know yet. One of the things that I love about your your documentary was it kind of gives us sort of the good and the bad of uh, I wouldn't even say the good, the bad, but like a whole spectrum of YouTube. Like YouTube has given us massive stars, you know, like you, you and you talk about it, like Justin Bieber starts out on YouTube, but also and it was uh, the New York Times chronicled it in an amazing podcast called Rabbit Hole. The, the way the algorithm feeds people information leads them sometimes down horrible, dark rabbit holes. That's the name of the podcast was rabbit hole and where are you enthusiastically or ambivalently or otherwise when it comes to the the potential impact of youtube on our culture moving forward i think that one of the reasons that youtube gets spoken about so seldomly or inaccurately is because it's so giant i think that it's hard for people to wrap their hand around it i was somewhat amused a couple of years ago when i started working on this and people were like oh well you know what about tiktok isn't that like the hot new thing and, you know, YouTube has 4.6 billion views a day um, and TikTok has billions and billions less than that. And YouTube is is not just a place for kind of micro videos that can be uploaded and shared. It's all of our news. It's all of our entertainment, um, both, you know, visual and audio. It's all of our music and all of our TV and all of our movies and all of our influencer content. And it's the, the repository of all of recorded human history. And it's a search engine. It's so true. <laughs> and and it, it's, it is the largest media conglomerate on earth by an order of magnitude. And that is, I think, so unimaginably giant that people can't get their heads around it. And I didn't even include social media platform in that description, which is what often people refer to YouTube as. I, mean, I don't even think of it as a social media platform. 
So it's, you know, there was an article, I think even yesterday or today about people are pushing back against the harms of, of these platforms and YouTube isn't even mentioned in the article. And it is by far the biggest purveyor of the harms that they're talking about in the article. And it's just, it's just ignored. And that's partly by design. I mean, Google's not dumb and they, they have enormous lobbying power and they've spent a lot of money to get people to go away and leave them alone. And it's also by a mis general misunderstanding of technology and how it works and, and how we use it. To answer your question specifically, and the reason I gave such a long preamble is YouTube is so big and its influence is so pervasive and it does a lot of good, an enormous amount of good. And intentionally, it does a lot of good. They've made a lot of really good decisions about how they, you know, diversify their creators, how they monetize their creators, et cetera. Um, but obviously the harms are going to be big. You know, rabbit holing was an important thing to examine, and, I, and I'm glad it got examined when, when it was being talked about by a lot of people, especially around the advent of the, the recommender algorithm. But that's kind of a bygone problem. Like we're in a new phase of YouTube's power and the power of disseminating and monetizing disinformation. And mm. that's something that we look at very intently in the film, especially leading into uh, an election year, which is that YouTube did a lot of work on the recommender algorithm. It's actually very hard, hard in my opinion, unlikely to, for you to be rabbit hole today, meaning that you go on YouTube with fairly blase or naive motives and you end up going down some incredibly radical path and you get radicalized. Uh, someone who gets radicalized on YouTube today, it's because there are huge funded channels with millions and millions of followers that have a bunch of ad revenue uh, money being pumped into them that have massive followings that have a very strong parasocial bond with their audience that are spouting propaganda that is often being funded by some dark money coalition. And that's got nothing to do with an algorithm or a rabbit hole. That is much more to do with the fact that it's our biggest broadcaster on earth and there are no guardrails. There's no standards and practices. There's no regulation. There's no real rules other than every once in a while they claim they're gonna like take certain types of content or people off. Like they will boot Alex Jones off, but they'll leave Steven Crowder on. Mm. Steven Crowder is calling for civil war and inciting violence and has millions of followers. So I think that's really the problem. And I think the best analogy is our previous industrial age and exactly the way you phrased the question, which was, you know, is it a good or bad thing? And think about the automobile and think about how long it took once the automobile was being used by everyone all the time before we had seatbelts and before we could get the automotive industry to take responsibility for the harms that their product was causing people. And we're in exactly the same place right now with big tech. Do you think that the solution or a solution possibly to the disinformation, to the state that we're in right now is media literacy or some sort of YouTube media, uh, YouTube literacy, social media literacy. I, I mean, should this be taught in schools? Should there be a, you know, hey, welcome to YouTube. Watch this before you go any further. W if you had a crystal ball or like a, a, could wave a magic wand without putting up the guardrails so much that it stifles the ability to have this free platform where anyone can pretty much put whatever they want out there. What do you think is going to be the, the, the way to keep us, keep people safe? I think it's a number of things. I think we do need regulation. I think we do need antitrust law. And I think that there's a big difference between losing open platforms and having content that's much safer, much, much safer for people. It wasn't difficult for YouTube to de-platform to de Stefan Molyneux, the influencer 
who provoked the Christchurch, New Zealand shooting, mm. um, which saw 51 people get murdered. And that shooter's manifesto was just pages and pages of how YouTube and Stefan Molyneux told him to do it. Um, so Stefan Molyneux is no longer on YouTube. That is not uh, preventing people from getting access to, you know, really cool free content. That is someone who was, you know, inciting people to extremist terrorism. So I think that, that there's a huge area of room for maintaining freedom of content uh, and basic safeguards. Another example is very recently, up until very recently, YouTube had a policy where they were not allowing content on the platform that promoted the, the Stop the Steal movement, right? The big lie, which was the reason for the January 6th insurrection. And YouTube was the largest driver of radicalization of J6 of any other platform. Hmm. And so YouTube said, okay, well, that's not good. So they deep, they started removing that content until two weeks ago when they reversed that policy. Oh, no. And, said, and they were public about it. They said, we are no longer removing content that refers to the 2020 election as FOSS. And this is as we go into an election cycle. Oh so like God. these are these are really basic examples. This is like putting seatbelts in your car, having them there for a little while saying, ah, screw it. We're gonna take the seatbelts out of the car. So I've gotta start with the companies because there's so much more they could be doing to prevent, and YouTube, but all of them, to prevent the willful monetization of very dangerous propaganda that is usually funded by ideological, deeply pocketed interests. But then to your point, absolutely, we need, we need education. And right now we don't really get that. We get a lot of what I would call well-meaning misinformation, right? Like let's dismantle section 230 or which, you know, we could belabor, but there are a lot of protections that keep the internet working that people think would be an immediate fix to just making these companies liable and more accountable. And the, and the internet is just far more complicated a beast than that. So media literacy, internet literacy, uh, I think less narratives around the algorithm and more narratives around what are people's incentives that are just pure business model incentives that are very human, very understandable. Um, the algorithm just confuses people and makes them think like this stuff's like weird magic that happens in the, in the tubes. <laughs> um, but I think media, media literacy and disinformation literacy is mm. super important to, to be educating, not just kids, but adults about. Agree. <laughs> Agree. I, I, uh, but to me, the hard part about that is I go like who creates it and who enforces it? Because even though like I think I probably agree with almost everything you're saying, you know, like I'm originally from Florida and I look at some of the stuff that's going on in Florida right now where the government is imposing things that are challenging basic obvious truths and it's super frustrating. So like who could we even trust to help create a set of guardrails who wouldn't then turn around and say, well, I want the guardrails to allow us to uh, to radicalize people a little bit this way because that gets my party sure. more votes. Before you answer that, Alex, real quick, just in case anyone doesn't know what Ben is talking about because he says what's going on in Florida, uh, Prager U, which is featured in your, your documentary, uh, yes. DeSantis, oh the governor of Florida, has just said we should be bring Prager U into the schools, into the public school system. And of course, they're, they're now famous, not just from YouTube, but also for creating all these quote unquote educational videos, which are climate science denying and all kinds of other other well, they things just, which yeah. in the entire state of Florida, they just got rid of AP psychology classes because they talk about gender at all. And we're talking like seniors in high school, like 17, 18 year old kids not being able to take an AP psychology class anymore because it violates weird state guidelines. So, and, sorry for interrupting, yeah, I Alex, think that, but I think go, yeah. go for it. 
That's a really good example. Yeah. I think that my opinion on this is that there has always been a need to fight. If you look at, you know, even recent history, like the civil rights era fights meant that were so vigorous and, and pushed things forward so, so much over those years. And so many of those, of that progress being rolled back and then the need to continue to fight, you know, the good trouble, right? As, yeah. as the, the phrase went. And I think what we're learning, my feeling about technology is the same feeling I have about civic politics, which is if you fall for the ruse that there are, that there is two sides, right? When the only two sides there are, are absolutely verifiable truths and there are ideologically driven lies and that's disinformation. So I'm not just talking about misinformation, which is I'm just wrong because like we can all be wrong. I'm talking about intentional disinformation, right? Yeah. Which is the earth is flat and the flat earth movement largely grew out of an anti-government movement that was funded by a lot of very ideologically driven people that wanted to draw more people over to this anti-government side so that they could become empowered. So the sad reality of it is if we don't get involved, right, if we don't fight the fight, then we do give rise to, to autocratic governments and we will lose our rights. And so the best way to look at this in recent history is Dobbs, right, is the loss of Dobbs. And women, whether they're you know Republican or Democrat, losing their reproductive rights. So you can't say, well, the government, because of, of civic fighting that went on for decades, the government impl implemented certain safeguards for women to be able to have reproductive rights that have now been reversed. And that shows us that, like it or not, we do need to use the tools of government. We do need to fight. And to your point, yes, what if we have safeguards in place that protect people from disinformation and a dictator takes over America and reverses those and starts to your point says, okay, now I'm gonna take these rules and now you're the disinformation, you're the enemy. Well, hey, guess what? I hate to say it, we have to fight that. Yeah. And it just means that everyone has to get involved. And what worries me about our current climate is it's very easy to straw man certain issues. And right now it's, there's a big anti-technology backlash and a lot of people are just saying, well, just don't get on these platforms, don't use these communities. Well. It doesn't work that way. Like our children are on these communities because they're they're important communities to them, and they do provide an enormous amount of benefit, despite a lot of propaganda that states the the inverse. And what we need to do instead of saying just put these technologies down, which are not going to go anywhere. So you're doing the tech companies a favor when you say that because you're removing yourself from the fight. Um, is you need to be literate. Like you actually need to engage with these technologies. You need to know how they work. You need to know what's good about them and what's bad about them because they're not going anywhere. And if we don't fight, I guarantee you that your rights will get taken away. I guarantee you there will be more propaganda and not less propaganda. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's exhausting. But like, I know. Look at the strike. Like, look at what we're doing every day. Like, you know, I think we saw that sort of creeping realization hit people in our industry where they're like, well, surely the AMPTP is going to come to the table. And then it was like, oh, well, maybe they're not. Oh, well, yeah. maybe I've got to maybe I've got to hit the streets. Maybe I need to learn more about the issues. Like what is going on? What are the residual issues? What does a mini room issue mean? Like you saw all this discourse going on in our industry of like people getting hyper educated within the first few months once they realized that like it or not, they couldn't just sit this out like they couldn't just wait for somebody to do the right thing. It just wasn't going to happen. 
And there's there's really no feasible way as a culture like this is basically what you're saying that we could go on strike against YouTube or any of the social media giants. You know, I I kind of admire my friends. There who, isn't even a union. There's no yeah. labor union. I mean, <laughs> the influencers don't have a union. There's no creative content union union. Well, so, I mean, like, what would be the answer? I mean, if there was if there was there should uh, be there should be a union. <laughs> they should unionize. They they desperately need to unionize the, the oh. influencer. How, oh man, it's just a brilliant idea, but I'm like, I, it's hurting my brain to think how that could work because it would be like if there was only one movie studio, if Universal Studios was the only movie studio, I guess everyone could go on strike against them. But also, and you always hear this, there'd be a line out the door of people wanting to get into Universal Studios to get to make something. And with YouTube, that's, because that's the monopoly is the big problem. And we talk about yeah. this in the movie and we need to break these companies up. And that is not going to happen anytime soon. What may happen is because they have so much lot power. What may happen sooner is that they may start to see legitimate competition because because of where we're at in this inflection point in the industry where if you're Amazon, if you're Apple, if you're another tech company, you're looking at YouTube going, you have the, and Google, which owns it, you have the capability to eat all of this without even impacting your profit margin much. And you've got to be thinking about infiltrating that industry and creating competition. Uh, and eventually that will happen. Eventually they will not be the only game in town. That's inevitable. It's just a question of how long that takes. One of the things I found very interesting this year, this year, uh, going back to VidCon, being out of the uh, the pandemic and talking with some of the creators who were there, who were getting education on on how to produce their, sh their channels. So many of the people that I spoke to did not even realize that they were, in fact, businesses, that they were making money. And like, for example, when there was government bailout for businesses during the pandemic, there was this huge swath of creators who had legitimate businesses who never applied for never applied for the you know the government aid for them while they were doing it. And I feel like if there was a bunch of people, if there was a, a huge group of creators that maybe did form a union and did decide that they were going to strike, I feel like there's so many people who just want to step up and take their place. The idea of, of crossing a picket line to the, you know, the next generation in this space, everyone has this consumer mindset. The mindset is consumers. The mindset is how quickly can I get what that other person has? I've heard the number one Number one aspiration now of high school seniors is to be a YouTube creator, not a movie star, not to work in Hollywood, sure. not to be an astronaut. Yeah. Well, you don't, and you don't have to leave your living room. I mean, you know, yeah. it's an interesting shift. And that shift has happened in less than a generation. It's just it's it has the thing. The thing that gives me hope about it, though, is that, you know, there's a lot of talk about there not being gatekeepers and the democratization of Internet culture, which which there's an element of truth to that, obviously. And there's an aspect of that that I think is actually one of YouTube's greatest assets and one of the things that it's given our culture that is a really good thing. You know, that you can have Natalie Wynn on ContraPoints having a giant following of just as much as someone on, on the right or whatever, or, you know, your standard kind of white American dude is more likely to get a voice than someone in, in a small African country who's getting a huge following. However, they're not just getting a huge following because they're slapping on headphones and going in front of their webcam. They have to provide a service that people want. And there's many, 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 many people, majority of people who say they want to be influencers who realize within the first few weeks that that ain't going to happen and nobody wants what they're selling and they don't have any and they should really go find a job. And so it's really in a way not much different than when I was young and like fame, the movie fame came out and everybody wanted to 
to go do that. And the, like the, 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 the musical theater and like drama schools got flooded with people. You know, when I went to film school, I went to NYU film school, you know, everybody wanted to be Jim Jarmusch or Spike Lee. And in my freshman year class at NYU, there were 2000 people. Sophomore year was 750. There was like 300 people by senior, uh, 30 people by senior year, what? 30, <laughs> 30. That's quite um, a lot I of attrition. Of I, I dropped out in junior year to go make Lost Boys, but that's a whole different story. But my point is, is that there's always some generational thing that looks like it's the shiny object that you want, that you then, and you've got, I've got three kids, right? One of whom is already out of college, one's in college. And you look at them and go, they're there, you know, <laughs> like entertain this folly. And they go find themselves and they're like, well, that was a disaster. And so, you know, the, there are gatekeepers. There, there are both gatekeepers within the internet to a degree in terms of, of what the zeitgeist is and what type of creators actually uh, rise. And then there is just the public's appetite and and who they decide is going to do well. So I don't like I'm not to your point about the unions. Like, I don't think just because you have a union, it means that everyone goes on strike on day one. I think that it's, you know, sort of you just said it yourself. It's the ability to collective bargain. It's the ability to say, let's get everyone's voice together. And it's also the ability to educate. Like, look how well, you know, I've been in SAG since 1977. I've watched so many strikes happen in the unions. And because of the internet and because of where we are economically right now, this is the first strike where within the first few weeks of even the WGA strike, I was like, SAG and DGA and WGA are talking. Oh, here's IATSE. Oh, here's, you know, uh, the Teamsters. And now, Everyone's talking. Now there's people in unions that aren't even related to my union. Now there's people who are PAs that don't even have a union. And like, and we're all talking and we're sharing stories and we're talking about our labor issues. And, and I'm, you know, I'm in my late fifties. I learned an enormous amount about other unions and what their issues are and how they get paid and how they don't get paid. And that was super helpful for me. And the, so the idea of a union at its very least, just being a, a way for there to be collective discourse and for workers to be able to talk to each other. And then that has huge power across union. Like if you looked at what happened with the Teamsters, where like we were forming solidarity with their UPS skirmish, mm. which they, they ended up averting a strike. I mean, not because of us at all, but I just mean we were like, okay, you strike, we've got your back. They were like, we've got your back. And there's enormous labor power in that. So suddenly YouTube isn't even if it's a monopoly, it's not so powerfully siloed anymore because their workforce, they're basically the creators of their of their profit are now plugged into the greater labor workforce. And I think that would be an enormously positive step forward. You know? It's so interesting to think about how, how you go about doing that, but also, you know, being a YouTube influencer or having a YouTube channel is something not, there's plenty of people, you know, over the age of 20 who are doing it, but that specific culture, and I, I feel like Smosh typifies that, even though those guys are probably in their mid thirties at this point. Yeah, they're really old. <laughs> by, by YouTuber standards. I know, but, I'm kidding. But like, I, mean, I think about like, um, hell, but yeah. well, like Machinima, you know, the, the story yeah. with Machinima was that they would get these like 14 year old kids into 10 year contracts and right. basically own everything they did and it's like that kid wasn't even old enough to really be allowed to sign that contract and uh you know to them it seemed like oh i'm making all this money but youtube in general is like it's a bugaboo of mine that we're in the content business because it sort of makes the container the important thing the content is the whatever exactly. crap you put in there youtube yeah. is this perfect container with its algorithm and the way it presents and how you can link it and all that cool stuff and then it's like yeah and then all the all the people out there 
there in, in crazy town will just make whatever we'll put it on and it'll you know yeah exactly and that thinking permutates all through netflix amazon yeah. prime blah 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 yeah everything becomes content nothing is nothing's an event nothing's about the art it's about the the container but i wonder right. about like because it's so youth-centered and when you're 20 years old you're not thinking about joining a union you're not thinking about health benefits how do we make this an attractive thing to somebody who is starting out and trying to make a name for themselves in that world i think it's education i think it's i think it's people realizing that they do have an option and i think that because what happens is sure you've got all the people who who are clamoring to get in and become you know whomever the next natalie win or the next smosh or whomever it is but you also have a lot of people who are doing well, who are young, who don't have any protection, don't have any regulation, don't have any benefits, don't have any labor laws uh, wrapped around them, and they're suffering for it. And I mean, you raise the issue yourself. There's a strike, you know, there's a, a labor crisis that comes along or a pandemic and they can't work and they don't know enough to know they should be getting benefits, right? And mm -hmm. so they're not sustaining themselves. And corporations have never been, you know, historically the place to save you. The container, as you put it, is concerned with the profit to the container and elevating that brand. And it's always fallen on unions. That's why I've had union health insurance since I was 18 years old. It's like, it's always fallen on unions um, or other ways of educating the workers as to what their rights are. So, I mean, look, it's, we're in an industrial revolution. That's the whole reason we made this doc. Everything is moving super fast. And we're now uh, at a point where workers are being devalued all over the place. And in our industry, you know, I bristle, talk about YouTube, I bristle when I see like one of these like boutique indie companies, you know, referring to the new movie as like their movie. I'm like, it's not mm. your movie. With all due respect, I don't care about you very much. I don't care that you've got a cool brand that is on Letterboxd all the time. I'm interested in who actually made that film, right? Yeah. I mean, who who wrote it? Who directed it? Who acted it? I don't care about your cutesy little distribution company. And they'll be like, you know, this company presents a film by this company. I'm like, it's not a film by you, right? It's a film by workers. And they brought it to you or you bought it from them. But, you know, you have a brand, all due respect, but you are, as you said, you're the container and you're going to be profiting off of the success of someone else's work. And I just think that it's a very critical shift that sort of speaks to the uberfication of, of the workforce where you become a gig worker, you know, for yeah. some brand. And you're like, but the brand's attitude is like, hey, you're, you're lucky you're working for this brand. This brand is super cool. You know, your, your son is wearing a T-shirt with our brand's logo on it. That's how cool we are. And it's like, well, I don't care. Pay me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I got a question. You bring up indie films and the indie film studios. And in some ways, the people out there who are on YouTube and certainly the most successful ones, and I'm thinking of like, you know, the Mr. Beasts and stuff who are making huge amounts of money from this. At some point, there is going to be creators who do not need the system anymore. They do not need the system that has built them. Do you think that there is going to be incentive for them to start to create their own networks, their own worlds, their own indie studios, uh, their own platform, so to speak? Or do you think it might move more decentralized where anyone will in their garage or in their living room or whatever it is, start to be 
less reliant on the big platforms or does it become this uh, media, you know, they talk about streaming wars. Is it going to be creator wars where everyone decides that they're going to have their own silo, their own thing, and they're going to lock people into in like a new studio system where only these these creators can appear on these platforms. I've put a lot of thought into this. I'm really curious yeah. to hear, like, what does your crystal ball say? What Which direction do you think we're going? Because is it all of the above? Cream always rises. What's going to happen? Any, any yeah, thoughts at all? I- Sure, of course. I mean, you know, we're on all these WhatsApp threads due to the strike, and one of them that's been very robust is one that's looking into creating independent studios for artists. And it's a very big concern at the moment, given the strike. And there's a lot of people who are very smart, doing a lot of legwork investigating how to create independent studios, which I think is an amazingly great thing and should be you know, vigorously pursued and investigated. However, I think that that the friction between you know the worker and the the people who own the the means of power has always been there forever and ever and ever since the wheel and that is human nature and that is a kind of four-year-old on the, in the sandbox grabbing a tonka truck and then realizing he, he's big enough to grab everyone's tonka truck and then he suddenly he's got all the tonka trucks and you know you can evolve as a human being and get to a really great place and then you have kids and you watch your kids do the exact same thing. Doing and it right like, now. <laughs> you know, yeah, exactly. And like, look, D.W. Griffith hated the studio system. And like Frank Capra very famously broke off from the studio system, you know, claiming that it was onerous and that there needed to be independent studios for artists. After that, you had United, well, around that time, you had United Artists, which did that. And then you had the 70s revolution that did that. And we're living in... Uh, I watched this happen when I did the Napster story because Napster was really created by very ideological young people who wanted to create this sort of utopian community for artists that ended up getting co-opted and used in exactly the opposite way of what their vision was, which was just to enrich a handful of oligarchs at the expense of all the artists. And that's what just happened to the music industry. And we're watching it happen to the film and television industry right now for exactly the same reasons and so there's always going to be people who, uh, who want to acquire power and who will exploit people in order to gain more power and to profit off of those people. That is just human nature, sadly. So there may be some version of all of the above of what you just said, but there's a reason why Mr. Beast is still on YouTube. YouTube gives him access to the 4.6 billion views a day that no other platform on earth comes anywhere, anywhere even close to. And if he steps off of that and creates his own thing and sees what his life is like when he gets like, I don't know, thousands or tens of thousands of views a day or whatever it is, that's a tricky place to be. And there's only a few people who could even get away with attempting that. So I think that there are models uh, of people who have done independent stuff. They're usually already so successful that they're just taking an ecosystem that exists from over here and they're moving it over there. But generally, they've needed this a legacy ecosystem of some kind in order to, to mm. gain that success so and that following. So I'm very skeptical of artists being able to create wholly independent frameworks that don't already have massive success within these industries. And I'll be very curious to see how that would monetize. You and me both. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, it kind of goes back to the content container question because the people who are making this stuff are 
nothing would exist on YouTube if people weren't making it and putting it on there. YouTube, like you said, doesn't really make its own stuff. And yet, you know, even though these people are like learning how to shoot, learning how to edit sound design, add music, they're getting, you know, like, uh, you know, Douglas Fairbanks didn't have the money to have his own film laboratory and his own film stock manufacturing and own his own cameras and his own sound stages. But these people have that at their fingertips, basically the right. equivalent of that. And yet they still need this, the, the algorithm. Distribution. Yeah. Yes. They need distribution and they need, they need access to infrastructure. Entertainment requires a lot of infrastructure, even if it's just you on your laptop. And, you know, there was that, that famous Coppola quote that, you know, one day a little kid in Ohio is going to make a movie that's going to be the best movie in the world. And it's like, that's true. But I, I guarantee you that the next movie that that kid wanted to make would either, they'd either want to be Mr. Beast or directing the next Marvel movie. And, yeah. you know, you see it ha- you see it in the independent film world all the time. You see someone who is the most ideological, artistic purist, you know, artist who's come up independently making small independent movies that do well. They grab that big action movie. They grab that 10 part series for the streamer. And that is usually the end goal for most of these artists is to do something on a much bigger, more monetizable scale. And that's very hard to do if you have a little mom and pop creative entity and to your point that's competing with now with what 10,000 other mom and pop creative independent entities it's really hard to see how that scales yeah i don't know what the napsterfication of the youtube creator economy looks like but you know just i think we're living in it i think the napsterification of the economy is what's happening in streaming where where you now have you're playing whack-a-mole with all of these different ai like open source ai companies and like Everyone has access to all this radical technology. There's like a, there's a million streaming companies. None of them are really monetizing the artists. It's just like after they killed Napster and you had like LimeWire and Grokster and, and then eventually, you know, legitimate ones like the iTunes store which and Spotify, which continue the same practice of not paying anybody oh, anything. Yeah. So I think we're living through the Napsterfication of the film and TV industry. Hmm. Yeah, I do sort of feel like a lot of it even started with kind of piracy and this is totally off topic of your film, but like, I feel like the streaming stuff is almost a reaction to Pirate Bay and BitTorrent and all that stuff. So they figured out, okay, well, here's a way that you, you know, we'll make it so that you don't need to steal it. But then they ended up just stealing the money from the artists. Well, the miscalculation there, which we were trying to get people to understand back in the Napster days, is that you could have both. There was, uh, there's always been attrition, you know, and I think there was the famous Wolverine case where Wolverine leaked early yeah. and Fox freaked out. And then they realized it was the best possible promotion they could have had. And the movie did gangbuster business. And for years, we were trying to tell people that piracy was not killing the entertainment industry. It was an area, it was a a legitimately unethical piece of breakage within their industry, but it was not terminal. And uh, so I think that a course correction around that was misguided. But I also think it's really what you just said. I think that they had dollar signs. I think that they were like, well, if we take the entire ecosystem that's over here, the public, and we move them off of watching linear TV and movies, and we like lock them into this, our own little ecosystem, we can then make a fortune, which of course they did, but at the expense of not only the artists, but of the, the survival, the survival of the industry itself, which is where we've now found ourselves. Well, but and with a company like Netflix, they have to like make professionally produced TV shows and movies that could compete with anything you would see in a movie theater or on HBO right. or network television. Which we're, we're learning is hard to do, right? Yeah. And they have to have like yeah. a fire hose of it pointed at the yeah. at the viewer. Whereas yeah. YouTube, in a way, figured out, let's make 
the viewers make all the content. And it's the MTV model. It's, that's yeah. the, it's, yeah, well, we're going we're gonna to be an ad-driven. We're not a subscription-based service. We're an ad-driven service that utilizes content that we do not spend a dime creating. I mean, that's what MTV did. Unlike a lot of where we are with streaming, which I think is largely negative and not productive or monetizable or additive to the consumer or the artist. I do think that what Google and YouTube have done and what a lot of these platforms are doing in that world is largely a net positive. Um, I know that's in this current climate, a controversial thing to say, and I don't mean it that way. But I do, you know, all three of my kids are on YouTube all the time. I've never taken them off. Two of them are grown. They're fine. They didn't get blackpilled. They're very intelligent. They like to read and go outside and do stuff. I think that there's a lot of misinformation around the harms. So while I think the harm, the monetization of disinformation is an extremely important and dangerous issue, and they do need to be regulated, and there does need to be changes in the way they function. I think that we as a culture need to stop othering these technologies and looking at them as something that is separate from everyday life and understanding that they are really part of, they are part of the, the, the community, the human community has evolved into these spaces. They're not separate from us and they're not going away. And look how you and I, look how we're talking, look how we survived during COVID, look how this enabled the strike force to be, be so effective. All of that is because of the growth of online community and, and the, the robust nature of these technologies. So. I just think that we need to get the pendulums, which swung too far one way, then it swung too far the other way. I think the general cultural place we need to sit is more in the middle of like, these things are like, it's like the automobile. You don't want to stop driving your car. You just want a seatbelt in it. I think that's just a very important point to drive home. I think that's a great place to leave it. Oh my uh, God. Thank you so much. This is just profound. I'm going to be digesting this all day. This is, this is so much fun. <laughs> I, uh, you know, Alex, it's always it's always a treat having you on the show, and yeah. uh, I'm so glad we, we got to do it again. Uh, we're going to be uh, spreading the word about this movie, and uh, I, I hope that a lot of people get to see it because it's uh, it, it's, it's really important. Import, I don't important piece easily. of work. No, I, yeah. I don't either. It's an important piece of work that people should be looking at. So, yeah. Thanks, guys. Well, it's great to be here as always, and uh, we'll keep fighting the fight till somebody finally <laughs> gives us a deal we can take. <laughs> <laughs> Or they'll just they'll just scan you and have your avatar to accept the, well, that, yeah. the bad deal. The, yeah. But then then we're just gonna then we're just gonna have like you know reams and reams of garbage content that nobody wants to watch, which is my argument against that future. <laughs> but have you seen this trend of people like pretending that they they don't really exist? I think it's only a matter of time between all, all the Zoom meetings are going to be avatars talking to each other, and it's like yeah, holy, holy that's crap. What, there's, when there's people a talk about a, future a, that's that's heading our way. People talk about AI writing and producing content. I'm like, if we could just teach the AI to watch it and enjoy that's, it, then they yeah, can, exactly, perfect. precisely, yeah, yeah. <laughs> give them give them the streamers. Replace them. Watch the, yeah. I'm gonna go watch a play. I'll go back exactly. I'll go back to the movies or the theater. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. All right. Thank Gentlemen, you so much. Thanks, thanks right, so much. Guys. Yeah. Bye-bye. All right. So that was Alex Winter. That was so much fun. I'm so I could have talked to Alex all day and all night. He's such a fascinating and smart guy. And I follow him on social media. And I feel like he's one of those people who ends up on what I consider to be the right side of every argument. And he does it. Uh, without being confrontational or a douchebag. He's a genuinely interested, nice, cool guy. So, Agree. It's, a, it's always great talking to him. Anyway, so Ben, guess what? What? We got to pay some bills. Now we're now with video. 
We have to thank our fine friends over at Aperture, Aperture makers of incredible lighting products. Uh, they have been specializing in entry-level products for professionals, and they have a couple of different uh, lines of products, including uh, Amaran, which is the really entry-level, sort of a more of a creator tool, which I think is very appropriate for all the stuff that we're talking about today. But My God, yeah. I didn't realize that it was going to be a, such a theme show, but yeah, keep going. It's, it's totally gone that way. But uh, Aperture is trying to level up. They are trying to level up not only from a creator world, because they really kind of started as creator products, but they want to be in rental houses. They want to be on professional sets. And they have been getting some success in both of those areas in the last couple of years. And they have announced a couple of new lights, but one I want to talk about in particular, but it doesn't have a price and it doesn't have a release date. Hmm. It is very, very interesting. It is a... 1500 watt that is powerful 1500 watt led with full color so rgb ww they call it the electro storm cs15 i know it just rolls off the tongue mm. but the electro storm cs15 would be the brightest and biggest full color led light that they have ever made at 1500 watts it is more than double their 600C, which is their current brightest full color RGB. And with lights this size, as they're getting up to this side and cameras getting more and more efficient, it means you can illuminate huge, huge areas without needing tons and tons of units. Uh, it only exists in prototype form. So who knows? Maybe it will shift a little bit by the time it, it is released. But with these levels of brightness and this amount of relatively minuscule amperage, it's probably going to be able to be powered on a 20 amp household circuit. We're talking about a huge amount of light, huge amount of light that not that long ago you could not get from anything over at Aperture. It's very impressive, uh, you know, the direction it's going. So thank you, Aperture, for sponsoring the show. We can't wait to get more information about the Electrostorm CS15. Love the name. And now, short ends. So, Ben, it is short end time. Uh, what is your obsession of the week? What are you all about? What are you what are you into? Well, I want to say I didn't mean to be so in lockstep with the rest of this episode being, uh, you know, VidCon and the YouTube effect. But something that has uh, caught my attention is a YouTube channel. And it's from somebody who you introduced me to. Oh. Holy crap. 20 years ago. Oh, my God. Really? Michael Cioni. And I know oh. we've talked about Michael on the show many times. So Michael Cioni, when you introduced me to him, he uh, was one of the people running a company called Plaster City Digital Post. And it was like early days of high-end digital cameras. And part of their business model was basically that they would digitize your footage and online your footage. And they were using like Final Cut Pro workflows and stuff like that they had an uh they went from having like one small office in hollywood to having like a pretty amazing facility on sunset boulevard then he left there founded light iron then he left light iron and worked for frame io i believe and then frame io got sold and so he has started a youtube channel for his new venture which is called strata are you familiar with this at all i am i've spoken with uh, michael about it extensively yeah so for those of you who don't know Michael Cioni, he's like one of the most engaging and intelligent speakers you'll ever know. He almost comes across as too enthusiastic, like, like. But that that is him legitimately. That is yeah. his authentic self. He is yeah. so enthusiastic about that. Yeah. So Strata, which is this new company that he's 
founded and he formed this company with his brother and and some other people and they're creating like ai solutions for workflows for filmmakers and what he's doing is he's making these mini documentaries and posting them on youtube about the process of putting together like uh, the process of pitching to venture capital and just this week alone he did an episode that was about the difference between pitching an idea to hollywood versus pitching it to silicon valley because he's kind of doing both you know he, he talks about his love of things like apple's keynote and how he loves to put together pitch decks and it's fascinating to watch michael's process i don't know if michael would even remember me i haven't talked to him in a number of years but i've always found him to be a, an impressive and engaging guy but i also think that this this series that he's creating for youtube is actually pretty instructive for like how to put together an idea, how to pitch it, how to have a vision. And they started not even exactly knowing what they were going to do, but they kind of had an area. And so it's sort of watching them drill down and figure out what that's going to be. Anyway, I'm finding these videos fascinating. And each time a new one drops, I think there's only three or four at this point. Each time a new one drops, uh, YouTube is like, hey, would you like to watch this? And I'm like, yeah, 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 can't wait. So, uh, you know, my hat's off to Michael Cioni. I think uh, everyone could use a little Michael Cioni in their life and uh, definitely check out Strata. Michael Cioni was almost on the podcast like three times. Twice we recorded with him and various external forces kept those interviews from actually making the show. But now that he's got his own company and there are no external forces and there's no one to put the kibosh on that, I say that we get him back on here and we have him talk about this. I'm sure that he'd love to, to go into more detail. I'm sure he'd be just as enthusiastic. A anyways. Oh, anyway, sorry, so, so Ilya, what is your obsession of the week? You said it was weird, so I can't wait. Well, I don't know if it's exactly weird. I, I mean, look, um, every once in a while, these market research firms come out with studies that you can't find. They only sell them to people with deep pockets. And it's usually like, you know, industry related market research. So a group called Maverick did a study of the creator economy. And, you know, this may be not that weird, but there is uh, an organization out there called uh, Digital Information World. And we will put a link in the show notes over at Cam Noir. So anyone can read the sort of synopsis of the study that Maverick put on, where they basically surveyed a bunch of different creators at different levels and different genders and different everything to find out how much money people were actually making in the creator economy. 51%, more than half of the people who were earning money in the creator economy were earning less than $500 per month. So if you really mm -hmm. want to talk about like, you know, the inequities and the uh, abilities of some people to make huge, huge incomes, the, you know, the essentially the A-list Hollywood of creator economy, it's this very minuscule number of people. And there are people who are making more than that. There was a certain number of people who are making around $10,000 a month, which is like $120,000 a year. That is a very solid, respectable income. But that number still is way, way smaller than what I think most people out there think that their favorite creators or people out there are earning. Yeah. And this is a lot of channels and things that are between like maybe five and 50,000, uh, you know, subscribers per video, per whatever it is that they're doing. So they might have millions of subscribers, but um, the, the individual projects that they're putting out into the world, five to 50,000 views. So it seems like too, that most of the money that is coming in from them is not from the payouts that happen from the ad sharing revenue, but from personal deals that they work out. Of with. course, you see it all the time. I mean, like with, uh, you know, Corridor Digital, who we talk about here, you know, they, in addition to having their own subscription website, 
most of their videos have a sponsor read, like they have an ad read that they have to do on the episode. You know, Cinecom.net is always sponsored by Storyblocks, and they go into a thing about Storyblocks. And I feel like that's the only way to get, honestly, to wrestle the control back. To me, the question about, you know, if you were fully YouTube-sponsored, the Mm. question would always be like, well, YouTube changes their algorithm, and that will completely affect your fortunes despite you doing nothing different and you you see youtube creators uh complaining about this all the time every time youtube kind of changes how they do business and they don't have to be all that transparent about it so they just kind of change the way the algorithm serves the video up to its pre-existing users and those creators their ability to pay their bills just drops and they haven't changed their mode of business or anything all the same people want to watch their video just the algorithm tweak so i feel like they i'm sorry to get on a soapbox about this but everybody if you're gonna make money at that you kind of do need to have your own outside sponsorship yeah i think it's interesting too because this study also or this survey found that uh, instagram reels and in-feed posts command slightly higher rates over tiktok and youtube videos i wouldn't have guessed that i wouldn't have guessed that the that the reels were sort of like the the hotbed the place that you can command the most money Man, to, to, i must to, be old too because like i it's not that i don't watch them but i don't like i never go out of my way to watch them well, it's, it's interesting. It's it's where uh, it's where people are making the money now in this creator economy. So so very interesting to see uh, where it's going and what's going on. And we'll put a link in the show notes if you actually want to get into digital information world and look at some of the uh, the the information that's uh, that's shared here. It's, it's fascinating stuff. I think there'll there'll only be more of it. So here it is. This was like the first all creator economy episode of the cinematography podcast. I, I think it's I, it was it was interesting. It's definitely a little bit of a uh, a departure from our usual stuff. And we've got plenty more of our traditional stuff coming up. But I thought it was fun to to offer a little bit of uh, variety. It was yeah. Know, for those of you listening to our audio feed, we didn't mention this, but we are releasing this as the first ever video release of our podcast in a we'll decade. Put, that's right. We'll, we'll we put should it have on. started the video earlier when we were both younger. Yeah, that probably would have made a lot of sense. Now, now they got to look at like old guys. And sorry you know, about that, everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. 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 We're old. A couple of gray beards. <laughs> All right. So, Ben, I think that's just about going to do it for this episode. Where can people find you? They want to track you down. Benrock.com. Make sure to smash that like and subscribe. <laughs> How about yourself? <laughs> You can visit me at Hot Rod Cameras, hotrodcameras.com. That's that's where I'm at uh, a good portion of the time. Uh, you can also find my what my LinkedIn. Maybe that would be over there, something like that. LinkedIn, and uh, yeah, you know, uh, reach out. You know, you need to build a studio. We're building some studios right now. That's kind of fun. Cameras, lenses, lights. We do, we do all that stuff over at Hot Rod Cameras. That's my day job. I do very technical things Monday through Friday, which is why I love this podcast. I had two great interviews today, uh, which we you know we'll be getting into in the in the coming weeks. Holy crap! And, I didn't know that you. I had zero interviews today. Wow. Okay. Well, I I had two. So. <laughs> I was very uh, glad to do them because I, we got to talk about a ton of stuff that was not technical. We got to talk about art, craft, and philosophy, and that hey. was so much fun for me. And that's actually one of the reasons I love this podcast is we get to talk about stuff that isn't just ones and zeros, isn't just you know plugging cable A into into slot B. We get to actually you know get into some of the, like you know the real stuff that life is made of. So you know, uh, I'm content. Excited. Sorry, <laughs> exactly content. So Ben, who do we have to thank this week? 
Well, we have to thank Ben Katz, who had to do double duty and edit a video and an audio podcast. Here, here let's let's give Ben Katz uh, really details on exactly how we wanted to edit. So at three minutes and 45 seconds, go to a full screen of Ben, and then you can use me as a cutaway. No, I'm, I'm yeah. kidding. Of course, yeah. So. Let's, let's, let's not do that. Let's also thank Alana Cody, who mm-hmm. uh, has been kicking all the ass and getting us some amazing interviews. We have several coming up, including apparently two that you did today that I didn't even know about. Oh, so, yeah. Uh, I got I got left out of that loop. That's fine. It's all right. You you hadn't watched either of the shows, so, oh, so that, it, it was it was appropriate for me to. Um, <laughs> and uh, last but never least, let's thank Kay's Alatracci, who created all of the music that you heard in this podcast. Kay's can be found at musicbykays.com. Go there, check out his music. He's also a director. He's also a VFX artist. He's also a colorist. What else does this guy need to do to get your business? So uh, anyway, that's it. Ilya, you want to take us out? Thanks for watching. Yeah, I know. Isn't that crazy? That's crazy. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.